Hey everybody, you're listening to Dead Ideas, the podcast of extinct thoughts and practices. Today we've got a very special interview for you. This is part five of our series on Russian serfdom, and we're talking today to Kristaps Andresens of the Eastern Border podcast to find out how the serf commune of Tsarist Russia stacks up against the Soviet kohos system of the former USSR. Was it better than serfdom? Was it worse? Was it pretty much just a continuation under a different name? What is the deal there? That's what we're talking about today on Dead Ideas. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. The music we just heard was created by Rachel Westhoff, my lovely wife who overfilled her music quota this week by holding down one synthesizer note for a really long time. <laughs> I actually learned from one of Chris's episodes uh, that you could get bonus pay in the Soviet Union by overfilling your work quota in ridiculous ways, pretty much just like that. <laughs> Is that about right, Chris? <laughs> well... <clears throat> Здравствуйте, товарищи. Um, yeah, hello, guys. Um, it was... It was interesting. You had to do it, and it's like uh, it's like with the joke with a really huge one, huge nail. That's true, because you, you, when you when there is plan to fulfill, you sometimes have to do the craziest, stupid things to do it. So you know, uh, if she would if she would hold the note for three days straight, I bet <laughs> she would get an order of Lenin himself. Because it would count as three days worth of music. Yeah. Of course, it's like playing so much. Yeah. But then I, with music, okay, a little side note here, yeah. but with music, it, it wasn't actually the craziest thing to imagine, because at one point, during the beginning of Soviet era, uh, there was this idea that even uh, all, all art had to be socialistic, so they tried this socialist realism and stuff like that, But while, and that sort of caught on in the Soviet Union, but at one point, they experimented with socialist music, and how that would work is that each tune... Uh, of, of like those, your seven basics, do re mi of, of the gamma had to be played uh, once before uh, before it could repeat itself. Essentially, you couldn't play two laws in succession. You had to play la, then every other note, then la again. Only only in <laughs> such a way so that there would be equality in music. It was dreadful and terrible. Uh, it would never caught on. But there there are quite a few quite a few concertos actually written like this. Um, and I don't recommend you. I, I recommend you listen to about a minute or so of, of one of these uh, socialist music pieces. They are not uh, not good in your ears. But you say when you have things like this, then you know holding one button down for three days, eh, not that terrible. <laughs> okay. Well, you heard it here, folks. Let's. It starts right here. A grassroots movement to bring back socialist music. Go out in the streets. Kick over some trash cans. Let's get this started. All right, everybody. I'm BT Newberg. You can call me Brandon. Joining me today all the way from Latvia is Kristaps Andresons, host of an excellent, informative, and often even fun podcast called The Eastern Border, which is all about what life was like under the Soviet Union. Kristaps also does the podcast PDRP, or the People's Democratic Republic of Podcast, which is a, a bit broader uh, exploration of politics abroad, and Kristaps holds a PhD in political science and works as a professional journalist and podcaster. Oh, I'm all, still working on my. I wonder. Working on my PhD. So I don't Chris, have a PhD yet. Not it's, not it's coming soon. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> but it, it will okay. be there because I have to. But 
everybody, just to give you an idea of what this guy is like, when I reached out to him two weeks ago about this interview, this is what he replied back to me, and this is a direct quote. He says, I am literally hitchhiking throughout our rural Russian border for material now. I'm cold, in the middle of nowhere, sipping local moonshine from my flask, and ate some goose for breakfast, which I had to help butcher and prepare yesterday. While it's cold, people take you in more, tell you stories more, as there are no tourists or anything. Conclusion, field research is awesome. <laughs> well, that, that actually is pretty normal here, I don't know. It's a fun thing, you know. You you have to go out in the countryside. Um, I I live in our capital, and it's you know there there are a lot of people here. It's and and you can't really go and hike. And you know while you're hiking down and, and enjoying nature, why don't gather studies? It seems fun. Well, yeah, you know. exactly. Well, thanks for being on the show, Kristaps. <laughs> no problem, man. So, Kristaps, you know helotons about the Soviet Union, and I know a little about Russian serfdom, or at least I pretend I do. I mean, honestly, I. I didn't actually know anything about it until I started researching it for this series, but I read a few books. Um, so what I'm proposing today is that we sprinkle our two handfuls of knowledge, like different varieties of hops in a vat, stir it well, and just see what brews up. So, sound good? Yeah, okay. All right. Okay, so before we get started, we should lay out a very basic timeline for our listeners. And this is just going to be very swift and basic. And Kristaps, you can interrupt me if you have any corrections to this, too. Okay. So, as we've discussed in detail in previous episodes, serfdom, which is the legal condition of being bound to the land you live on, and you have to work for your landlord, uh, and you can't leave it without a special permission. Serfdom arose in Russia as a gradual process, which was finally codified into law in 1649, and it stuck around till emancipation finally came in 1861, though slightly later in some areas. Then the Bolshevik Revolution did not hit until 1917, meaning that there was over 50 years separating serfdom from the revolution that would become the USSR in 1922. Finally, the USSR, as we're more familiar with, fell in 1991, giving way to the Russia that we know today, and speculatively, the budding bromance between Putin and our new beloved leader, Mr. Trump, over here. <laughs> Did, I get, Did I get all that right, Kristaps? Well, approximately. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's close enough. Uh, no, the, the, idea, the idea is that, uh, they, yeah, before the, with the years before before Kolhoz started and served them ended, oh, there were there were interesting things going on in the meantime, like a whole revolution of anarchists and social democrats oh, yes. hanging together, and uh, then there were then there were also this uh, civil war in in Russia, you know. Which, by the way, <laughs> listeners, uh, right now, or at least right now as we're recording, uh, on the eastern border, Kristaps has a whole series coming out on exactly this. Oh boy, it's um. I know more about Lenin than, I don't know, Lenin probably remembered the, at the end of his life, because <laughs> this is weird. But yeah, that's, that's not the point here. Uh, so, I, I presume you have looked at serfdom quite quite nicely here, and, and it was also here in Latvia for a while. What can I say is that the, with the serfdom is the reason why we kind of don't like Napoleon here, and why Napoleon had such a harsh time conquering Russia. Because you see, in Napoleon's Russia, in Napoleon's France, serfdom was abolished, right? 
and he abolished it everywhere where he went. Yeah. So over here, we in the Baltics and Belarusia and, you know, the, the territories of the Russian Empire, which weren't as weren't Russian, we never liked the Russian Empire because we were living under brutal serfdom then. So at the beginning, uh, people actually supported Napoleon's conquest of Russia because they hoped, you know, serfdom will be gone. It's going to be awesome. Mm-hmm. But then turned out that Napoleon had no interest in abolishing serfdom here because he just well, he just wanted the Tsar to say, well, hello, I'm sorry now. And then he would just give it all back. He never had that planned. And the, and his Napoleon soldiers actually enforced serfdom more brutally than, than the peasants at the time had been used to. What? So, you know, yeah. Huh. Napoleon's generals weren't extremely nice people. Not to us, at least, well, because by the at the point of serfdom, at least in Latvia, we were prohibited of entering our own capital, and it was legally legally forbidden to, for anyone to teach us how to read or write. Uh, that that came that came a bit later because everything in Russian Empire came later, but we we did, we got this later. But yeah, we were at a pretty terrible condition already. Uh-huh. Then and and Napoleon just took over from the local barons, and you know by that time we were complete subhumans. In very, very, in like a lot of senses. So, huh? Yeah, no, it doesn't, su- doesn't surprise me that the generals weren't like super nice guys to you, but it surprises me that he didn't abolish serfdom because he did pretty much everywhere else that he conquered. So, as you said, so that's interesting. But yeah, what do you what do you want to know about great colhosts of our awesome motherland? Yeah, yeah. Okay, we'll get into that in just a second. But there's one more thing that we should stress from the start for our listeners' sake which is that even though serfs in Tsarist Russia lived on something called a mir, or commune, we'll, we'll hear that word a lot today, um, this was not actually communism. Communism is an ideology that didn't come to Russia for a good 50-plus years after serfdom ended, as we just saw in the timeline. So just make sure that you keep those two things straight in your head as you're listening, and then you'll be good. Okay, now, now we are ready. So Kristaps... Can you start us off just with just the basics? What was the Koho system? I mean, what was that all about? How did it work? Probably most of our listeners may never even have heard of this word before. I hadn't before I listened to your show. Okay, so kolkhoz uh, is abbreviation of the term or the collective farm home. Which, by the way, for our listeners' sake, we should spell that so that they can Google it. Kohos is K-O-L-K-H-O-Z, correct? Yep. Okay. The idea was that uh, all land was nationalized, like completely nationalized. You didn't own any land whatsoever. But if you were a farmer, that means you still had to, like, you, you now farmed on government land. But... Being a farmer and being uh, just a single person operating in a farm meant that you were harder to control. It was easier, for example, for you to hide your grain because in Soviet Union, if you're a, if you were a farmer, you would just be your all of your grain would be taken from you away, and then then it would be redistributed by the communist officials. Uh, but essentially, people people living in simple single farms were considered kind of treasonous and dangerous because they were very self sufficient. So. Every, so Mr. Stalin, before him, so so St- like like we say over here, Stalin decided to throw everyone in, throw everyone into kolkhoz, because uh, that meant that people had to come together into this uh, and form like a collective collective farm hold essentially. But all the land would be still owned by the state, and everything that was grown in the kolkhoz had also be given to the state. 
Um, and if you work there, also it was run by an official, by a state official. And the weirdest part is if you participated in this work in Kolkhoz, you would be paid back in kind, not in money. Like you would get, a, there would be a person noting down how much do you work there. And according to these notes, you would just, at the end of the season, give in all your grain and receive some, some of that grain back as your, your thing. It, it, was, it was kind of weird. Then Kolkhoz became the administrative departments of the countryside in the Soviet Union. Uh, and they had their own political party office. They were essentially becoming small villages, like collective farming villages, essentially. Uh-huh. With, uh, but there, there were Kolkhoz, not just for farmers, there were Kolkhoz of fishermen and, and, stuff, and so on. Now... What what happened in these Kolkhoz was that there was this official party bureau and, uh, well, let's just say these people who lived in Kolkhoz were, uh, they were not, they weren't even issued passports. They only got passports in 1981 and previously they couldn't move to live in another district without specific permission. They couldn't even leave How? to visit the city without a specific permission from their local KGB officer. How big was the district that they couldn't leave? Oh, wow. Uh... We have a bit of a different scale here, I suppose, but they were of varying sizes. For example, those kolkhoz in the Baltics, which were actually a bit less free than in, in the mainland Russia and mainland Soviet Union, because we were the western side of it, the more liberal one. Over here, it was like a, the size of a small town, essentially, with some areas around it. Okay. Because yeah. it's, it's not like the size of... But then again, in Siberia, that could be a size of you know a much larger one. They were just... Uh, basically taken from the previous administrative uh, administrative divisions. There were like uh, there was this kolkhoz and like some eight kolkhoz were together in the district, stuff like that. So each each of kolkhoz were like a small town, basically. Huh. Okay. And but these were, of course, these kolkhoz would all be like you know uh, assigned to a, to a city. Essentially, there's the city. Now with the industry and, and stuff, and there would be many kolkhoz surrounded who would supply the city with food, and they would kind of work for the city agricultural needs. Okay, huh. it, it worked like that. there were there were also sovkhoz, which were the Soviet uh, Soviet farmhold, which was which uh, where in kolkhoz you kind of partook in this community there and got paid in kind. In sovkhoz you were basically hired by the state to work there and you didn't receive any part of what you've grown, but you received a monthly salary. It was sort of like organized state farming. That was the other type of this. How common was that? About 20% of all kolkhoz were were sovkhoz. It's like they were there. They were there essentially, these sovkhoz. But they they, legally, they weren't. Legally, sovkhoz essentially meant that Sovkhoz were kolkhoz directly owned by the state, while kolkhoz were on paper owned by the people who run kolkhoz. Of course, it you know never happened, but well, the only I mean, is collective. And... I, what confuses me is that under you know under communism, it, the government owns all means of production, right? So doesn't the government own everything? Kolkhoz, sovkhoz, everything. They do, but technically. Uh, Kolkhoz meant that essentially um, it was that on, like you said, uh, there was Soviets owned everything. But in theory, the legal distinction, because I have read all the all the all the Soviet co- pa- Soviet like papers of jurisdiction, their laws are fun. Uh, technically, Kol- technically, see all factories and all Sovkhoz and all that was state owned. Kolkhoz meant that instead of working in a state owned 
factory directly controlled by that, you chose to cooperate with your fellow farmers and create uh, a create a private activity which was like kolhos. It was basically your small communion coming together and doing things on government land. It's like you asked for government, hey, give us some land and give us that factory and we will work there as independents, mm -hmm. sort of. Okay, so it, 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 it's all owned by the government in the end, but at, yeah. in, on the local scale, it, it's much more kind of like regionally or locally oriented. Essentially, essentially, the communist, the main communist party owns everything, but these are like subsidiaries. Like uh -huh. lesser communist party would would control this one area, and this would go then to the regions or something. Okay. Huh. Okay, so that that's interesting. So to compare that then to the serf commune. So what the serf commune was, which of course, as we said, came well before this during Tsarist Russia. Uh, the serf commune was a a form of almost self-government organized and run by the serfs, even though they were all essentially pretty much like slaves of an aristocratic landlord, the landlords were usually so absentee that they would just have the serfs under them doing all the governmental jobs for them. And so in some sense, the serf commune was like operated by the serfs themselves, organized, enforced, and it was a local way of, um, I guess, uh, structuring their society where everybody was sort of collectively responsible for the money that was owed to the landlord or the goods that were owned to the landlord, um, whether agricultural or whatever it was that your commune created. Yeah, so so the the big thing that stands out to me as uh, the contrast is the presence of the government in like the kind of the feeling of the government being looking over your shoulder seems like it might have been much more prominent under the Kohos system than under this the serf commune system because serfs despite being quite downtrodden had a lot of self-determination in terms of how they kind of organized their time throughout their week within a, within certain limits because it was it was serfs and other serfs and and yes they would they would flog each other and whip each other but for the you know it, it wasn't like big brother was watching constantly well in the soviet state the kgb which was it is totally not big brother they are the nice people do not make a mistake it might cost you your life uh yeah but essentially kgb was everywhere and uh, KGB enforced this panopticon-like way of of self-like reporting. Mm -hmm. Like you know, if you report on your neighbor, you might get his apartment to live in, or or stuff like that. You see, all these all these uh, ideas about people being spies for KGB. Essentially, KGB finds something on you, some material that you have, something that it, you're you're doing something, okay? Because mm -hmm. they could essentially find materials on on anyone if they needed to, but they needed some legitimacy because it was all bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. So you know they find some materials on you, and now you have to you know gather materials for KGB, mm -hmm. or you know you'll get in trouble. And this this happened everywhere. And I mean, uh, yeah, it is. It, it's a, you know that the KGB is watching, but you also know that KGB is definitely watching from the eyes of someone that you know and. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of mistrust. Mm -hmm. But yeah. surf communities, the, the difference was that uh, even though people from in Kolhos were tied to their land, I mean, that, that happened because you, 
really couldn't just shift away and, and you couldn't really not work there. You couldn't move because you had no passport. Yeah, that I mean, part was were, really interesting. You were literally tied to your – so so people in Sojitskokos were literally tied to their land and they had to do basically forced labor for, for the state. But they couldn't – they weren't sold or bought, I suppose. They weren't. They there weren't property in Kolkhoz. Right. Because uh, in in Russia, in Serf in Serf Russia, like every every peasant ever was a serf. There were no free peasants uh, until the abolishment of serfdom. Um, secondly, uh, people could be like sold, like owned, like slaves in the material, and they couldn't even get married without permission of of, of their landlord. Yes. So you yes, know, it was but... it was it was kind of like um, paraphrasing another another term here. It was like serve them, but with a human face. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, here's the, here's the, the thing, thing though. Here's here's the thing though. Okay. So I was really interested to hear that that uh, the mobility was so restricted on the in the Soviet Kohos system because because the defining feature of of serfdom legally speaking when you look up the definition is being tied to the land like you can't leave it and like you said you're basically tied to the land under the Kohos system too if you can't leave without a special passport but the the main difference now that i'm seeing is for a lot of the serfs what we usually refer to as serfs under the czarist system yeah, you had an aristocratic landlord that could buy and sell you, just like you said. But here's the thing. There was another segment of the peasant population, sometimes called free peasants, but which is more accurately called, I think, uh, state peasants or even state serfs, because they couldn't leave their land either. It's just that they didn't have an aristic landlord. The state was essentially their landlord, and the state could convert them to the other kind of serf and grant them to an aristocrat at pretty much at will. And so to me, the system that you're describing under the coho system, yeah, they couldn't be bought and sold among aristocrats, but it still sounds an awful lot like that other kind of peasant, the state peasant or state serf. Look, Soviet Union was a prison in general, like a, a, a bit lax and lenient prison, but hey, it's not like anyone else who wasn't in a kolkhoz was does was that better off, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, except some in some except in some cases, uh, and this I don't think this happened in underserved them because uh, see you could also be just sent to kolkhoz for summer so that you could work. Okay. You had to do it because <laughs> if you like were summer if you camp, were, <laughs> some forced labor summer camp, yeah, summer that's what labor happened. camp. Yeah. Well, they, they, they went there for a while. Uh, essentially, it, it started in the 50s. Uh, and basically, in Latvia, in Latvian territory, it started in 1953 uh, and the 24th of, 24th of September. Essentially, they decided that, you know, there, were, there weren't any enough people working in Kolhos. And like in August, during the time when, uh, during the time when, you know, you have to harvest you have to harvest things there just weren't enough people there because you know nothing was really automatized anyways so this law declared that from the biggest cities to kolhos and sovhos uh basically were three 
30,000 high schoolers and students were just sent there. If you were in the later grades of high school or in university and not finished yet, you would be just sent there. And it was like uh, postulated as this is you have free education, so you must do this. This is your communistic duty. And, and there were punishments for not going, obviously, because, you know, the society pays for your education, provide for society and help out. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the only payment that was there was basically what you got because the local kolkhoz uh, like food stocks just you were you were given some food and a place to sleep didn't get you didn't get paid for it <laughs> except if you sometimes got very very lucky like my dad who studied in the musical academy and he happened to go in one of these cases into our like one of the best kolkhoz that we had in latvia which was like secretly opposing soviet soviet union all the time uh-huh also, that, that was uh, when I spoke about KGB. That was that one district from which none, no, no people were deported because he just the kolkhoz took them all in and protected them. Basically, my dad went there, and uh, that leader of that kolkhoz basically declared that he he should be off the field, but they should prepare prepare some concerts around. And then they got given beer because that that kolkhoz produced a lot of that. You could <laughs> get off because nobody want nobody cared and nobody wanted you there. But you know, imagine. Um, uh, unsupervised high school slash college kids in the Soviet Union, which is usually very oppressive, together uh-huh. in a in a remote place with way less way less communist people looking over them than as usual. What could possibly happen there? <laughs> Might be developing some independent thought. I don't know. <laughs> uh, hey, there. I, I, see, uh, in a while, like at the beginning, everyone despised this thing. But later on, that those uh, student gatherings there was basically seen as, you know, it's kind of cool. We're gonna go to this kolkhoz again because you could like swap illegal rec- illegal records there, you know, ah, okay. and stuff like that. <laughs> Black market activities all around, and so that's oh, that's where. So you didn't you didn't have like these like camp counselors that were actually like KGB agents trying to be your best buddy or something. Of course, they were there, but you know, it's it's one. Bureaucracy is lazy. They send some one dude from KGB and he's like there. And the KGB guy is utterly bored. He doesn't even have to work, so he probably sits and drinks all day. I mean, <laughs> you, you you think that people were taking their their work very seriously, and that's a mistake here. Because uh-huh. you know, most and then people people were pissed off. Of course, people were also pissed off because you know they they was just seeing that that's kind of stupid because nothing really works there. And no one really works, and then you know, and they had to live it like that. That the great things, but but yeah, this was this this was kind of crazy. Like they sent everyone, young historians, young philosophers, young young engineer guys. Everyone just gets gets tossed together and sent away for for like a month of, of August to work work the fields. Why? Because <laughs> why? Because awesome. <laughs> Wow, I had no idea. Okay, well, okay, okay. So, so talking about work and all, all of that, right? Um, so, I, I wanted to drill down into the details of um, the labor obligations of the co-host worker and who got to keep the proceeds. You kind of touched on it already at the beginning, but what motivated a farmer to actually work hard or not work hard? Because you're saying like nobody really cared, right? Basically, what motivated you to work hard was that you would get a premium. You know, you could you could have gotten like a prize from the state, but you overfilled your you, quota. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the problem is that, you know, if you knew someone, you would always, like, get that premium anyways. Like, if you, if you, it was better off not to work hard, but, you know, give the guy who decides who gets the premium and who doesn't a bottle of, you know, bottle of high quality vodka, which you bought on the black market. And hey, no, no overtime. Mm. Of course, in some situations, but, but that only worked if no one was, like, looking closely, because mm-hmm. da- this data was collected and compared. So, if you were running at the end of the year, and, and you looked at this, looked at everything, and you and see and saw that, you know, we're, we're running short of a plan, mm-hmm. possibly because two reasons. Reason number one, they were just lazy and didn't work hard enough for the whatever they needed to produce. Reason two, they were, they, they actually had grown way much more, but that thing, all of that was like basically stolen and put away in your private pockets. Because, mm-hmm. you know, pe- people stole from their workplaces. That was seen as the norm, basically. Mm. And, and uh, not just paper clips. No. Well, <laughs> everything. Because, see, all the good, your factory makes good boots. All, uh-huh. all the boots that you produce are taken away and sent to the army, which is somewhere over there, and you never see these good boots in the stores, like at all. You can only get them in the black market because they're very rare. Next door, your next door neighbor produces, I don't know, radios, awesome, cool, quality radios, which again are all sent to Moscow or to the army and are never seen in the stores. Huh. Now, what? That, that's just your next door factory. You share, you share a fence there. So, but but you know that if you walk out of your factory door with you know your shoes, you'll get in trouble with the KGB. So what happens is that after work, the, you you take your shoes which you have stolen, and then you go to your fence. Where is the guy from the other side who makes radios which he has stolen? And then you just swap the bags and go uh, swap the bags, go outside of your respective factories, and you know make some barter, exchange things so that you both end up with a bag of equal value. Then you go home and now you have good shoes. If your good shoes don't fit you, don't worry. Now you can trade these good shoes for something you need, or just convert them into all, all ever, forever accepted currency, vodka. Hmm. Well, that's interesting because it seems like there's a, uh, I guess you could call it a long Russian tradition of that, because under serfdom, that was also kind of. Oh a- no 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 no. This is proudly looked at as a nice, good, proud Russian tradition. This is, this is, this, see, this is, this is one skill that we, that we ex-Soviet guys have. That's, that's why we appear all sneaky, like, because uh-huh. doing, figuring out small, devious things like this uh-huh. is, 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 you know, is engraved in our blood now by this point, you know, under Russian Empire and Soviet Union. Uh-huh. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Yeah, but but that does make sense. It fits with how it was under serfdom because under serfdom, again, you, you didn't get a lot. Uh, you didn't really get fair salary or payback. I mean, you were treated like like the slave that you basically were. And in order to uh, you know make a decent, comfortable life for yourself, you all, oftentimes you had to skim off of what you were producing in the fields, and it was very easy to do so because. It was very underpopulated, um, so you didn't have crowds and crowds of people just always watching over your shoulder all the time. And also because the authorities were usually other serfs, as I was saying. And yeah, they had a job to do, but it was easy to kind of bribe the right person so they would look the other way. And so, in the you know, when you're carting your grain off to the town, you know, you just one sack gets lost, or you go off a little bit into the... Um, the timber lands that are owned by the Lord you're not supposed to collect wood from, but you collect a little wood from there and nobody knows the wiser. And that's kind of how you get by. And every once in a while, you just accept that you're going to get caught and get flogged and then sent back to the field. But nobody was going to execute you because the more 
the biggest problem that they had at the time was a shortage of labor. So the last thing they would want to do is put you in prison where you couldn't work the fields or much or, or even you know kill you so that then you definitely could produce anything for them. So yeah, that's <laughs> that does fit as like a long Russian tradition. <laughs> but that was that was that that's how it's going on here, you see. Even so, now, is that what you're saying? Well, you know, see all Soviet traditions die hard. There are people <laughs> who like are are sneaking sneaking things so you know mm-hmm. but uh of course of course now well in the parts of the ex-soviet union that that, that are in the eu we have to say that our corruption levels have have gone down tremendously mm. about russia and ukraine and uh, those other countries i i wouldn't be so sure because uh, because of the studies that i've received from ukraine and and from russia and, and mm. things they are they are a bit corrupt a bit, bit more corrupt places mm. but well <laughs> I don't even. Oh, we 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 talked about quotas, and then we jumped to this. I want to finish about mm, these, these quotas. You, had to reach. you see, after after all of this massive thievery from your work and and all your being just lazy and not working and pretending to work, you know, end of the year is here, and you need to like fulfill your quota. Maybe overdo it just just a, just a bit. If you're gonna overdo it by a much, then they might just put you give you a bigger quota next year. Yeah. That would be bad. So you have to like overdo it just a smidget so that you would get the premium, but the quota wouldn't get raised. So you can mm-hmm. like slap and you have to keep it at the minimum. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the year, if your grain quota and coal hosts are, are is like certain amount of tons, but you're lacking it, you would just count like all the all the things that you know, uh, like all all the skins of the grains. Mm-hmm. I don't know what well, I don't know the term for this in English. It's palatus uh, in like Latvia. a husk or something. Yeah, the husk things. You just throw them in there and count them as doing your plan. Oh, uh, okay. Or just, you know, you, you need to... In, in our shoe factory, from which everyone is just carrying out shoes and then trading for radios and so on for 20 years, uh, yeah, in, like, in, in the, that shoe factory decides that, hey, we should, like, we need to make more shoes. How do we do this? Oh, look, you. How, how about if we make them of poorer quality, then we can produce them faster and, with, and cheaper. Yes. And everyone so, profits. But so then the, they caught on that if they, would, if they would make like shitty shoes, then people can steal more material and go to their home and make good shoes by their hands and then sell them on the black market. Because amazing. <laughs> so the irony of it all being that in order to get rewarded for doing good work, you actually have to do worse work just like holding down the one synthesizer key to make a really crappy song <laughs> well yeah there is no incentive to actually do the good work yeah because because you're not getting anything out of it yeah besides in kolhos especially it doesn't matter whether or not you do the good work what matters is if you're pals with the guy who checks the list if you have done any good work yeah. and if you do happen to be like fishing then you go fish together you, you drink some vodka you know mm-hmm. maybe you have like car parts for mm-hmm. his car because car parts were the most like extremely deficient thing ever because all of them went to the army like all of them mm-hmm. so people really if, if your car got broken you essentially went on a hunt for those but yeah you you know you grease his back he'll grease your back and you'll have a good time fishing and drinking vodka you know <laughs> so who, who has to work the fields well those guys who don't know that they're accountants you know? <laughs> well we do have uh, a, a similar kind of absurdity in some parts of our governmental system over here in america for example you often see um, schools scrambling to spend money like crazy 
because it's getting to the end of the period that they have to spend their budget. And if they spend less than their budget, which theoretically should be a good thing because they're saving the government money, then next year their budget will get reduced and they don't want that to happen. So they're just going to spend it on, you know, just pointless whatever, just so they have the money next year. <laughs> so it's not, it's not totally unique to, uh, to Russia, at least. We'll say that. Yeah, but... <laughs> But those are the little, little, the little things. Like one of, one of my university professors, uh, one of our most prominent, also political scientists, Vlad Iversiyevs, once stated that corruption begins when you like your pal more than you like more than you like your country. Mm. <laughs> it's and it's an interesting statement, yeah. you know. So, uh, in the spirit of all this, there's something I wanted to ask you about. I heard this statement on um, one of your episodes. I think it was the very first episode. Of eastern border you said under the coho system you said that uh, farmers had so they had the lands the cohos lands that they had to work but then they also had their own kind of garden near their home where they're able to grow stuff to kind of sustain themselves and you said that 60 percent of the food eaten by soviet citizens was actually grown on the gardens because that's what the farmers cared about doing a good job at Whereas the Kohos lands were just relatively low in productivity. I mean, <laughs> what? <laughs> that is completely correct. Yes. <laughs> Do you want to know where the where all the food went? Yes. I, I can tell you. <laughs> Number one, it was uh, it was uh, given to the army. Now uh -huh. look. You think your army is bloated right now? Okay. Uh -huh. Now during the Soviet era. Soviet army was like the biggest army on planet Earth. It had like in terms of like say tank divisions it had ta it had more tank divisions alone than all of fucking europe put together at the time okay it so was in it was insanely vast army and it didn't produce as much food because of the reasons mentioned previously you see yeah. so people are lazy they don't work as hard they try to work in their own home fields so the food just doesn't you know get produced enough so when you They're, say 60% of the food eaten by Soviet citizens, do you mean non-military citizens? Yeah, non-military. Oh, okay, basically. okay, yep, okay, yep, now it makes more sense, okay. It's like, because the military eats up all the legit food, and uh -huh. sure, you can get, like, pasta there, but, uh, well, I'm, I'm talking about, like, your own, like, quality bread, because uh, bread that's sold in the stores is basically half flour and half other substances about which we don't, which we won't sp speak about, because uh, <laughs> the, the lady who bakes the bake has stolen some flour so that she could bake her own bread at home. Uh -huh. it, it's when this, this Blatnoy system just intertwined and, and went through this, it was ingrained in the Soviet system. Uh-huh. That was, by the way, that was one of the political jokes and, and the kind of joking insults in the Soviet era, which basically stated, <clears throat> "I wish that you, I wish that you only will have to live from your salary." <laughs> that's like a curse. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a bad thing. <laughs> that's a bad so, thing. <laughs> that's essentially all the food goes to the army, which is huge, but there's just not enough food anyway, so very little gets to the stores. Uh -huh. Like you can't see sausages anywhere. Like sausages are very rare. Uh -huh. Like every, everything is extremely scarce, except like you know macaroni or something, some some noodles cheap to make stuff, okay. or, or 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 some crap, very crappy fish conserves. The food quality is very low. You see. Uh -huh. yeah. And so, well, that is why the people decided, heck, if, I, if we need to feed this 
Oh, barming and of course the upper echelons of nomenclature who just, you know, had mega feasts on a daily basis, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, if you see that all the food is going to going nowhere mm-hmm. and it's just taken from you, then yeah, people, your average people really just worked really hard to get their things on, on what they grew and what they could like buy in the black market and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> So I'm imagining that that baker lady at, at the bakery now, who's who's skimming the flour. I'm she must be substituting it with something, <laughs> like like maybe she like sprinkles in some cocaine to get the flour instead of going the opposite or other way around, like selling somebody flour instead of coke. <laughs> okay, all right. So my next question for nice. you. <laughs> So my next question for her, you. Name, her, her, her name is Good Tanya, <laughs> yeah. and she and she needs the money to buy a uniform for her for yeah. her grandson's football yeah. team or something. And everybody likes her bread. <laughs> 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 okay, all right. So my next legitimate question for you is about how the Kohols organized itself or didn't, because like under the Surf Commune they more or less were able to make decisions on their own and organize themselves. Even, for example, when it came time for the military draft, then the government would demand a certain number of recruits from that estate or from that commune, but they would allow the commune to decide who was going to go. And usually the commune would start by sending off the undesirables, the people who had gotten in trouble and stuff, and then after that kind of like choose by lot. But they got to kind of have a certain amount of self-organization and self-policing, too. And so I'm wondering, under the Coho system, was it like that? Was it not like that at all? What, how did that work out? Well, essentially, uh, each Coho had a, a director. And the director of Coho was kind of also the town mayor, basically. And he, of course, uh, hang, hung around there with the local local communist party head official uh, and they together kind of ruled they together were the two head guys over there of course okay. of course the local communist party official could always like replace the director but director had a lot of practical influence in there so he the, was the guy who decided who gets who who gets the premiums or not you know so the director was not necessarily a party member no uh, he obviously had to be a party member but there were party members and party officials okay because there was low, there was a local party cell everywhere. Like you had your schools, com, Komsomol organization, which is schools communistic party organization, kindergartens communistic party organization, really October's kids. Then you had universities party organization, Kolkhoz party organization. You see, it was like the uh, communist party was the leading clique, which is like mm-hmm. level above. It, it was officially not not related with the government itself, but you know it was everywhere, so it it, it really was. Yeah. So, that, so it was run by that. And about the army, well, massive conscription after high school, mega conscript army with the choice to stay later as a professional after your first first draft. Mm-hmm. That was completely centralized. Hmm. Hmm. So, so in other words, your answer is they had kind of, sort of, some direction, but it sounded like it was much more centralized than what I was describing for surf communes. Well, yeah. I mean, usually the usually the, the director of Kolhos would be someone who is the local from from the locals, but the party official would often be like someone sent from abroad or something because the mm-hmm. the state government. Sure. Also, after you like finished your college, 
like you, 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 you finish university, you become a doctor. Now, in, in normal countries, you could just then, you know, go and attempt to get work anywhere you wanted. Not so in the Soviet system. In Soviet system, you were assigned a place where you will work for like a minimum of three years. And then you can try to move away from there to a different location. And that could be anywhere in the whole Soviet Union. Huh. You finish university oh. in Riga and then you are assigned to work in a hospital in, you know, deep Siberia. <laughs> okay. <laughs> hmm. Okay, interesting. All right. Well, okay. So you were just, I got to go back just for a tangent here, because this was really interesting. When you're talking about belonging to the Communist Party or not, this has always confused me. I, I have a hard time imagining not being a member of the Communist Party under Soviet Russia. I mean, was there such a thing? And what did it mean to not be part of the party? Basically, a lot of people didn't want to join the party for ideological reasons. They couldn't openly state that, you know, they don't like the communists, but they didn't join the party. But joining the party basically meant that you had a lot of these political things to do. Like it was basically a job oh, at one okay. point. And uh, essentially all the directors, all the all the guys up, uh, kind of all, all, but not like, Okay, all the directors were expected to be party members of, of Kolhos, you see, and, and all the leading positions anywhere were, were expected to be in the party. But again, for some legitimacy reason, uh, th there were people running for like Soviet councils who weren't in the party, and th but they were specifically asked to come and run so that, it, so that the communists could start in a the communist and independent list, like uh, as if showing that, you know, there are independents in this uh, country. Uh. Hmm. Communist, but that that was just that was just obviously a scam because a lot a lot of these cases these people just you know uh, decided not to be in the party any longer and then they would run as independents and then they would join the communist party once again after after they had run as independent okay. and they were still on the same ballot list as as the communists <laughs> anyhow the idea is that yeah not everyone was in the party I mean party was a huge organization and organized a lot of things but you see people but if you were in the party you also had to had to go to extra meetings and you had to do a lot of a lot more of this political bullshit like mm -hmm. go to local party meetings and that means that you know if your local party organizer says you you have to do something then you should do you do that because now you are even more directly under the guy so it wasn't a lot of people were in the communist party but quite a lot it was about i don't know maybe 40 to 50 percent were in the communist party and again about 50 percent weren't sure okay so if i understand it right if you were not in the party it didn't necessarily mean that you were not on board with the values of the communist party it just meant that you didn't have the desire or didn't have the time to do the extra stuff that came along with it yeah, and people did it for career reasons because, like I said, if you were a director or, or, or if you wanted to become your head engineer of your, of your you know, place, then you had to be in the party okay. and stuff like that. It was uh -huh. it was meant to, for for advancement, really. Okay. And you know what? See, a lot of a lot of a lot of people, even those who were in the communist party, weren't really obsessed with communism. Um, there weren't that many people really obsessed with communism and the number of people who disliked communism very much just slowly increased since the very beginning and onwards. It started out with a pretty large number, you see, with the civil war and all. Hmm. Hmm. Everyone had to show that they're very, very devout communists, but, but, really, but really, well, there were zealous people too, obviously, but 
most people were just blatantly ignorant about the situation and trying to figure out how to steal from the government more. Maybe get, <laughs> if possible, maybe get hands on American genes. <laughs> right. Well, okay. So we're getting towards the end here. So now I want to get your opinion, and this is going to be an extremely subjective question that could be okay. different for everybody, right? But in the end, in your opinion, do you feel that the coho system was in any way an improvement over the system of serfdom from the perspective of the farmhand? Um, well, one thing the kohos did in a, in a good sense, and I have to give credit is due, a lot of these serf communities didn't, didn't have electricity didn't know how to read or write. They were very poorly schooled. No one really bothered. One thing the Soviet Union did, and that was a good thing, they really, really fought against, uh, it was like the battle against analphabetism, essentially not being able to read or write. They did mm. massive literacy programs. Okay. They uh, they electrified most of the Soviet, m most of the, the Russian era. Uh, see, at some places, uh, you know, at some places, Soviets, took away a lot and were terrible, but they had this one thing where they provided a bit more, like electricity and things like that, and you, had, and you could like go to school, you had to have school there, mm -hmm. and education was mandatory. Mm -hmm. in, in terms of quality of life, yeah, yeah, obviously, in terms of quality of life, obviously, people in Kolkhoz lived better. This isn't, that doesn't mean they were any, any less, any more free, or, or that uh, they they weren't like they didn't have to cheat to you know get food, but they were they could read and write and they could they had electricity so that is good that is an improvement, but I don't know in in, in a sense yes but in another sense well the serfs actually run their councils and got to decide some things more uh -huh. so I would I wouldn't call system of kolkhoz like. <clears throat> See, if we put serfdom in the absolutely terrible position, then living on Kolhos would be, well, really, really, really terrible and bad, but just a smidge just above that other option. Right. <laughs> yeah. Huh, yeah, so it, uh, it, depending on what measure you're looking at, it could be better or it could be, you know, something else. Um, yeah, no, and it's interesting that you say about the the sort of quote unquote humanitarian parts like um, combating illiteracy and whatnot. Because what I found in my research of the time under serfdom, especially its later years, is there were in fact a lot of aristocrats who did a lot of hand wringing about the system of serfdom and tried to make things better on their estates, but a lot of times it was just very, very difficult to do so because the serfs were so conditioned to be suspicious of their landlords and any, basically, influence coming from outside of their little local village and what they know. So, for example, uh, I read about one particular serf estate called Pistrovske that got, oh, the worst thing ever, a hospital. <laughs> And they were deeply suspicious of this hospital and refused to go to it because they thought that modern medicine was, you know, uh, either the work of the devil or just, just as likely to kill you as to heal you. Which, granted, in the 19th century, that was almost kind of not that wrong, off, not that far off the mark. <laughs> it might be the work of the devil or worse, the land, or worse, our local baron. <laughs> exactly. 
Or something. Yeah. yeah. So often it was very difficult to enact those kinds of humanitarian improvements. Mm. Well, um, Father very... Stalin. Well, see, Father Stalin took care of that. He shot all those people, everyone, and then sent some to gulags, and everyone who remained. You know, if if the if Father Stalin tells you to read, will you say no to Father Stalin? <laughs> Well, that's one way to do it. <laughs> also, also the KGB can't ask you to sign here that you haven't been physically influenced in this interrogation if you don't now know how to write. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the liter illiteracy thing, too, under serfdom, of course, vast masses were illiterate, but there were also literate ones. There were some very prosperous serfs and some who uh, were able to read and write. And, um, in fact... During this series, we read some surf autobiographies written by the surfs themselves, and that was fascinating too, uh, to 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 find out that there were there was a pretty significant segment of surfs, full-on surfs that were both prosperous and literate, and that got their stories down to us, and we can read them in print today. That was really cool. Well, you see, as long you 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 can be nice and wealthy as long as you don't don't step on the toes of some other people. Uh -huh. See, but also not being a surf and all these things. That was like, and I've spoken about this on, on the Lenin episodes. The the idea that you know, if you were just a bureaucrat after from from a citizen, uh, like a, a free person, just finish university and you become a bureaucrat in, in the Tsar's massive administration, then you know, after you get promoted enough, one at one point of life, you get promoted into nobility. Yeah. Right. And then, and then when you, nobility, yes. Yeah, and then, then you have the rights to purchase uh, purchase your your own surf commune. It's like here, you are a noble now. Please, please, be a slaver too. Uh, but a lot of people did this. You know, you go, you are a, imagine this. You are an 19th century bureaucrat who one day after work gets a, gets his new promotion and he decides that, yeah, this is just now right and proper for him to go out uh, go out there and buy a village land and surfs it all. <laughs> and then you live a pure, perfectly happy life there. Think about this. I like, just, I, I, I imagine this bureaucrat, like, down on one knee, like, before, the, like, the, the czar or the, or the czarina or whatever, and she's got the sword and it's knighting this bureaucrat and it's, like, very good stamping, very good form stamping, sir. <laughs> you have been stamping forms for 20 years good job <laughs> well uh, we got to draw this to a close so um, the last thing I want to ask you Kristaps is do you have any uh, latest projects that you would like our listeners to know about well, at one point, we, me and Alice have decided that we, and this is not, we really, really, really want to save up some money and go to Azerbaijan and Caucasus, like Georgia and Abkhazia, th those places, Armenia, because they might, because we, we over here in Latvia, we're like the north, northern part of, of this, this whole Soviet bloc, but there were many, many, many things in the south that could be a lot different. So we will try to save up some money and go there and provide direct sources straight from the people themselves who mm. all obviously speak Russian and we hope that we'll be able to do it at, at one point. But uh, yeah, this is this is our, our, our plan that we want to do. Oh, interesting. Is there a place that listeners can contribute to that? Well, we have our Patreon page, but okay. hey, it's, it's, your, it's your show. Let them come to mind and then figure it out. <laughs> go to Patreon. <clears throat> listeners of, the, listeners and... of this show support this show. If, if you go to my show and like my show too, support me too. But hey, you know, 
They can support everybody. It is, everybody. Un- it is unri- unwritten <laughs> podcaster code. Yeah, unwritten podcaster code. Uh, we will fly in the face of convention on this point. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, thank you for having me here. Uh, it was very nice, very nice of you. But yeah, it was really nice, uh, really nice to be here and go and listen to the Eastern Border too, if you're interested in hearing more of uh, weird Soviet studies. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks for being on the show, Christophs. Yeah. Thank you and goodbye. All right. See ya. Well, that's it for this episode, folks. Everyone, be sure to check out Eastern Border and PDRP. I actually just listened to a PDRP on the political system of Canada and was fascinated, so definitely check that out. Uh, Next week, we are going to talk about alternatives to and ways to escape from serfdom, and that is going to lead us into a lot of interesting and crazy back alleys of Russian history, including the Cossacks, Old Believers, Frontiersmen of Siberia, and lots more. So definitely check that out, too. And if you like what we're doing here, why not support the show? You can contribute at www.patreon.com forward slash deadideaspod. And as thanks for your contribution, you can pick up some great perks, like getting your portrait drawn in the time period and culture of your choosing. I did Kristaps, for example, as a World War II Russian partisan fighter, and his wife Alice as a Soviet night witch airwoman. And you can see that on our supporters page at www.deadideas.net. And you can get your portrait done, too. So support the show and help us keep this awesome content coming. All right, that's it, everybody. Thanks for listening. See you next week. I'm BT Newberg, and this is Dead Ideas.